Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here on a sunny day in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the microscope. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Jamie Brooks. Jamie is the director of Brooks & Brooks, a London-based salon. Uh, Jamie, welcome to the programme. Great to have you on with us today. Thank you very much and Thank you for asking me to actually come along and, and talk. No, it's uh, my pleasure, Jamie. Now, um, first and foremost, this podcast is all about the topic of leadership and effective leadership at that. And that's really come under the spotlight recently with the whole COVID-19 outbreak. So tell me, for somebody working in the services industry like yourself, how has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks? I can imagine it's been incredibly disruptive. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, we're a hairdressing salon and... and and, and, and for us, normally we see our clients anything between, say, five and six weeks. We're now, what, on the fourth week of uh, lockdown. Uh, so clearly there's going to be a lot of people with very, very long hair. We would love to be back there, back in business doing it. But obviously, the government guidelines are where they are. It's a very serious uh, situation that we're in at the moment. So we will just have to deal with it. Absolutely. And what do you think the long-term effect will be on the services industry as a whole? Um, I, I, I actually, well, I think in the hair sector, it's one of those things because it's something that people, I don't say they have to do it, but it's a, something you would need to do more than, for example, go out for dinner or go to the pub and have a pint. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm hoping, I'm very much hoping when we get back, uh, there's going to be we're going to be incredibly busy, um, but he is hoping. I, I think there's going to be a lot of people still uh, locked in the twelve week uh, lockdown. Uh, they won't be allowed out, obviously. But I'm hoping within the next twelve months things do sort of come back to normal uh, as such. Absolutely. And of course, time will only tell us to sort of how it pans out and how things develop and what the exact exit strategy from the UK government will be to get out of this lockdown. Um, But with everything going on with COVID-19, it's a real extraordinary time, isn't it? Um, Can you think of a time in your career, Jamie, when you've had to take decisions like this before, or is this very much uncharted territory for you? Um, To be be quite honest, my business partner, Sally, and myself, we, for the couple of weeks, before the actual lockdown, we've been trying to find ways of, uh, of of actually reducing the amount of staff we had in, the distance that they worked uh, between each other. So Because we, we could kind of see that it was coming. Um, so we, we obviously tried to plan as best we could. But actually, when that announcement came through at 5 o'clock on that Friday night, when it was like, as of tonight, uh, we're closing. It was a surprise, so we uh, we packed up our appointment server. Uh, we took it home on the tube with us. Um, yeah, and we're just trying to, you know, we're just trying to run it as best we can. We're trying to keep in touch with all our clients. We've changed our website. Um, you know, we're on social media a lot. Uh, we're trying to make announcements, but clearly we don't really know any more than anyone else when or how we're, we're actually going to go back. 
Exactly right. Um, it's there's so much uncertainty, and um, what it has done as well, this um, whole crisis, is it's really tested the ability of business to be reactive as well, hasn't it? You can be as proactive as possible. You can have plans in place for things like this, but with changing guidelines, with changing measures, restrictions, one has to be able to react to those. Not necessarily roll with the punches, but just be able to make informed decisions in response to what's going on. And that has really, really been put to the test within business at the moment isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of think that at, at the moment, you know, like le- leadership of any company um, is always important, but right now it's probably more important than ever because the actual decisions that you make now are going to affect you heavily for the next 12 months. Um, so, you know, you've just got to make, you've just got to, I, I guess you have to, you have to call it and hope that it's actually in the long term is actually going to be the, the right decision. Exactly right. Um, and there's no way really of telling which decisions are right um, at the moment because that's something that will become more apparent with time. But also for business leaders, I think it is important to note as well that human beings are fallible in their decision making and business leaders cannot get every single decision right, can they, even at the best of times, never mind in a crisis like this? No, and we have. And, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the one of the problems is, is you know, you, you make a decision and you think it's in the right uh, interest of your company or your staff or yourself, and then there's a government guideline comes out and then they say, well, you know, you should have been closed. So you think, oh, well, now I'm on the wrong side or, you know, had we, I mean, we, we obviously decided to close uh, immediately that Friday night. We finished that science, but a lot of salons still continued on the Saturday. Um, we made that decision. I, I didn't want to put my staff at that level of risk. However, there's a lot of people that said, well, you know, we, we, we have a duty of care to our, to, to our clients to come in and do the hair on the Saturday if they already had the appointment. But, you know, you, you, you know, you have to make a decision and you don't, only time will tell of whether that decision has been right um, or maybe it's a questionable call that you made. Exactly. And as a leader as well, you're always putting yourself in the firing line for criticism from some quarters, aren't you? Because if we take the government as a good example, and um, you mentioned those already, um, they have, of course, received a lot of approval for the measures they put in place to safeguard businesses, but also they've come under a lot of criticism as well. And being in a leadership position, that's just part and parcel of the role, really, isn't it? Scrutiny of your decisions. Yeah, well, I mean, very much. I mean, you can never... You know, you can never keep all the people happy all of, all of the time, can you? And, I mean, there are probably a lot of people sitting at home who think, you know, this is silly and we should have already been back at work now. But then there's a lot of people thinking that, you know, this is really the right decision. We're in this together and we, we've, we've got to keep this going for now. But but I, I do believe it's something that, you know, as, as a leader at the moment, uh, like Boris Johnson and the rest of the cabinet, they're making those calls. and. You know, they're very, very tough decisions, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure they don't want the country shut down, Um, but if it's in the long-term best interest, then it's something that they have to do, and it's a hard decision, but you have to make it. I see exactly where you're coming from, Jamie. They are very, very tough, tough decisions. And um, I doubt there are very many people who would like to be in the government shoes at the moment making those decisions as well. But of course, if along the way there are some decisions that maybe weren't the best decisions when you look at it retrospectively, I mean, it's all part of a learning curve, isn't it? And um, if we sort of bear well, that, yes. I was going to say, well, it is. I mean, it's, 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 it's always something that, you know, 
with hindsight, we would all make the best decisions in, in, in the whole world. But mm. I think, you know, you have to make decisions that are, that are there. At, you know, and you've got to judge it at that moment. I mean, if, if the science is telling the politicians that we should be shut down, you have to go with it. I mean, if there is a possibility that later they'll say, well, maybe we shouldn't have done it that way, but or we should have done more testing or less testing, you know, but you, you have to make that call, you know, in that heat of the moment. Um, and, yeah, you, you will obviously be judged by that, but hopefully um, they've made the right calls and it'll be a favourable outcome. I can exactly see where you're coming from, uh, Jamie, and I think you're absolutely right in saying that. Um, do you actually think it's possible to be a good leader as such without actually making mistakes, getting things wrong, and then learning from them? Because it's it's an inevitability, isn't it? Yeah, I, 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 I don't think any leader can just start in, a, in any role, any job, uh, and just make the right calls all the time. You're always going to get things wrong. You're always going to upset certain people, you're always going to upset parts of your business, but you, you know, you have to make those calls and you've got to actually have the courage to be able to say, right, this is what I want to do. Um, and, and, and this is what I think is, is right. And it's in the best interest of most of the people. And you've just got to go down that route. And of course, sometimes you will make mistakes. I think it's, it's inevitable and you've got to be, you know, you have to be sort of big enough to be able to say, yeah, well, maybe I got that one wrong. And, and then you learn by it. But I don't think anyone um, can ever make always the right call all of the time. Exactly right, because as human beings, uh, we are all uh, fallible, as I mentioned before. We're not going to get every single decision right. But there does seem to be, um, especially among younger generations, almost a fear of failure and also a fear of criticism. And if there's one message that we need to get out to the next generation of emerging leaders, it's really to embrace this fear, isn't it? Embrace the fear of failure. Learn the lessons that are needed from it, because it's so, so important. Yeah, and, 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 and I think that's something that, you know, I mean, I obviously own hairdressers, right? So we employ a lot of very, very young people. You know, they're qualified quite often by the time they're 19 years old. And, and yeah, and, and that's something that, you know, you try and instill into them is that, you know, you have to make the right decisions. You know, like, do you want to go on holiday on the busiest time of the year? Do you think you should be going out on a Friday night when you've got a big Saturday? And at, the, and at their stage of their career, for them, that is, quite a big decision um and you know and they won't get it right all of the time and your job as as their boss or as their leader is is essentially you want to try and guide them and you can't just say well no that's wrong you have to sort of almost coach them and coerce them to saying well you know let's let's look at this let's think you know is this the right thing and and i think you know i'm i'm now i'm now that 50 years old and obviously I've, I've had the benefit of being in business uh, for the last 19 years so yeah we've made a lot of very bad calls I wouldn't say well no sorry that was a mistake we've made some calls uh, early on that now I probably would do differently but I've obviously learned by my mistakes and hopefully they're becoming less and less frequent Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned, of course, uh, the younger generation there as well, and um, essentially how to manage them and more sort of coach them to help them develop. Would you say that maybe um, it's worth um, for some leaders taking a different approach to managing younger individuals as they would to maybe managing somebody a little bit older and more experienced? Yeah, I mean, I I think that's something you, you know, with with the young generation, you know, the younger generation, every time round, they're they're different. I mean, we've, you know, been in business now, as I said before, for 19 years. And what 
our young staff wanted when we opened to what our young staff want now is actually completely different. And you have to be, you know, you have to allow yourself to move with the time. You have to keep your policies quite, you know, quite flexible and quite changeable. Uh, you know, because nowadays with the young generation, what they want is different to what it was 10, 15 years ago. Um, and if you want to keep them and you want to keep them happy and obviously working well for your business, Yes, you, you, you very much do. And, you know, the young generation have different pressures now with the advent of social media, uh, you know, whereas when, when I was young, you know, we didn't have those, those actual sort of pressures. So it's very difficult for me to judge or to sit in judgment on those people saying, you know, you, you shouldn't care about Instagram or Facebook or all those things because for them, you know, it's a big deal. It certainly is, absolutely, and it is changing times uh, with the younger generations, especially now, because there will be changes once we come to the other side of this outbreak as well. Uh, tell me, Jamie, before we do wrap things up, um, when with regard to the next 12 months, um, do t- tell me what you hope to achieve with Brooks and Brooks um, coming through COVID-19 and then out of the other side of that, because I can imagine there are some substantial hopes there. Yeah, well, I mean, I hope in 12 months' time, I mean, we very much, myself and Sally, have assumed this is more or less like a pause button, um, you know, where we close the business. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, on day one, it's going to be different, obviously, how we open. We're probably only going to have a small amount of people. But, you know, within six months, um, I'm hoping we're, we're back by the end of the summer. I'm hoping we're back sort of where we were just before we closed. Um, it's going to be hard, and I think people are going to have to adjust how they work. I mean, obviously, we, we have quite a large staff. We have about 36, uh, 38 people in the shop at one time, which clearly we can't have that many people. So we're going to have to be flexible. Maybe we'll have to open more hours and we're going to have to do shifts. Um, but, you know, I, I think sometimes you still, you always have to look at um, the world as, you know, the glass is, is actually half full. I mean, you know, we've been through bad times. I mean, Sally and I have been in this long enough that we've been through We've been through September 11. We've been through the 08 crash. Um, we've been through the crash in the late 80s. Um, and, you know, and this is another, you know, very testing time. But but I'm sure, you know, we will get through it. Um, you've got to be confident. You, you know, you've got to look at the upside. It, it's an opportunity to reassess your business. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's never a good thing. But you've got to always you know, look at the positive side of it and think, you know, in 12 months, you've, you've always got to say, look, I really want to see, you know, I want to see my business growing again in 12 months. I mean, only time will, will, will tell, but I think quite often it boils down to the attitude that you have. You know, you can sit back and think it's all doom and gloom, but you've got to go, right, when we hit the ground, we hit the ground running and we're going to have to work harder, but that's maybe what we have to do. Absolutely right, uh, Jamie. And let's hope that business is in a position to hit the ground running, as you say, and really seize upon uh, these opportunities. And what I think would be fantastic as well, um, what I think would be great, um, as I was saying, is um, to perhaps even have you back on the uh, the programme in a few months' time as well, just to look at this retrospectively and just see how some of those hopes have been borne out. Um, but for now, Jamie, um, I've really enjoyed having you on the programme today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for coming on for the benefit of the listeners. And thank you very much for inviting me on and thanks very much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you, Jamie. Um, coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricketer Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, I hope you enjoy listening to the 
the interview just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. And that's coming up now. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dresscothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dresscothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people, it was the senior England teams at, the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international cricket or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, And then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on. Not, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, Well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, Mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, But then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, 
you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how, how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You right. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point Andrew, because there's, there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially 
when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfill that role? Ha. Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here, and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. You know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they... Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, 
doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was always brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was... Firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket quite a radical shift from what we, we what we were coming from yeah but mm. the rest of the game had moved on yeah. and the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially but also in in terms of players focus and interest yes. um and we had to move with, in fact we didn't have to move as times we need to get ahead of the time <laughs> so you know we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that um and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I, was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But... Actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final, again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of, Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life. And for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were Googling there and then what exactly the rules became. Because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I, yeah. actually. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, in your, in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you 
to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two f focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men extraordinary so numbers yeah i mean it, it, in the list of top 10 cancers it's number eight rare forms right. of lung cancer number eight so it's not really rare it's probably a misnomer but it's um yeah we're really lacking in funding and understanding and then the second element and probably this is in some ways more pressing is um to help uh Cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other. Because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and, yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we... I think as a society, we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas, and especially around mental health, and we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year, so if you could tell us about some of those, that would be... Yeah, so the... I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is... Yeah. a very inclusive if you're thinking about think about a marathon but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26 sounds ideal so we've got grandparents we've got little kids we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds um we've got the red for ruth day at lords again so that was an incredible day for us it last year you could you, whether you were there or not especially if you were there i mean to say but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth day and to see the 
the wave of support. You know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and and make it more of a community thing, not just the the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing re- wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing! Yeah, well, a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, no, it, absolutely, you know, they they were right behind us, and um, you know, we we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the bra- blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game so we need to find another way of doing that um i just think it's going to be an incredible success i'm so excited about it i know there are people that are worried about it but in two or three years time um you know we're going to have our own uh, short form tournament that will rival the big bash and we'll be moving towards the ipl and those are those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to. I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do. Well, it. surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.